BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, recognizing young social entrepreneurs through the Wesley Prize for Young Innovators of California, and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Every week on the California Report magazine, we share intimate moments of delight and struggle and hopefully create some moments of empathy, despite the many differences that divide us as a state. We do that by bringing you in-depth stories about real people. So as we wrap up 2018, we're revisiting some of our favorite profiles from this year. From the story of a heroic woman who brought the Underground Railroad to California. And she was said to be worth 30 million dollars for an african-american woman for that time almost unheard of almost to a teacher who's part social worker counselor and preacher she's taught multiple generations of the same families since she know my mom and my dad you know i I can't really goof around plus the story of a friendship between a music giant and an inmate at Folsom prison it turned out of the California penal system and to be put into the world of hillbilly show business, there ain't a hell of a lot of difference in a lot of ways. It's one you just swap in jailhouses. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. 2018 marked the 50th anniversary of Johnny Cash's historic performance at a prison in Folsom. He played to a captive audience of a thousand convicts. The recording of that show, called Live at Folsom Prison, went on to become a triple platinum album. But Johnny Cash's connection with Folsom went far beyond that. At the prison, he began a deep friendship with Glenn Shirley, who was a jailhouse songwriter. Reporter Peter Gilstrap dug up his story. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. It's the morning of January 18, 1968. Johnny Cash is on stage under the raw fluorescent lights in mess hall number two at Folsom Prison, giving the convicts what they want. Folsom Prison blues, dark as a dungeon. I still miss someone and send a picture of mother. Standing tall up there dressed in black, sweat rolling down his cheek, Cash squints through the choking haze of cigarette smoke at a prisoner in the front row with a chiseled face, a high pompadour, and a Pall Mall dangling from his mouth. Glenn Shirley has no idea what's about to happen. He has no idea his life is about to change forever. This song was written by 
our friend Glenn Shirley. Hope we do your song justice, Glenn. We're going to do our best. So how did California State Convict A59795C, a repeat offender doing a life sentence for armed robbery, how did this guy write a song that ended up on one of the most revered albums ever? Inside the walls of prison, my body may be, but my Lord has set my soul free. Inside the walls of prison, my body may be, but my Lord has set my soul free. The answer begins with a prison-made demo. There's a gray stone chapel. You're hearing what Cash himself heard the night before the show. It's Shirley's unreleased take of Greystone Chapel, recorded on reel-to-reel -reel tape by a convicted murderer and fellow inmate in the small granite chapel the song is named for. If you took the Glenn Shirley component out of that record, there'd be a big hole. That's country musician Marty Stewart. He played with Cash in the 80s and met Shirley many years ago. To me, that was kind of the heart of that record. That was a great gesture but it was also a great song and a deserving song, you know. But that was kind of the centerpiece of that record to me. Cash played two sets at Folsom that day and closed both with Greystone Chapel. It was a crowd pleaser. It put the spotlight on a humble prisoner and would be savvy Inside promo for the release. Most artists would have left it at that, but Johnny Cash was not most artists. By 68, he was getting a handle on his years of drug and alcohol abuse, resurrecting his career, and renewing his deep faith in the Lord. When he met Glenn Shirley, Cash was meeting a kindred spirit, a darker version of himself, had he made slightly different life choices. Oh, I think it was just a country boy thing. I think it was just a southern boy thing. You see a buddy down in the ditch, you stick up your hand, and you stick out your hand. But it, they helped each other. I think they shored each other up. And again, I think it was the best of intentions. Cash was finding salvation. Now, with the help of God in Nashville, he was going to save Glenn Shirley, too. I was born in Stigler, Oklahoma in 36. And I think it was 38, the latter part of 38, when the whole family moved to California, you know. In his teens, Shirley started getting in trouble with the law. He developed lifelong drug and alcohol addictions. And despite a dedicated wife and two young children, by 1960, he would be in and out of prison for most of the next decade. So what went wrong? What was the problem? I've asked myself that a lot of times because if you knew my grandmother and his brothers and sisters, they were all hardworking people. They were all very responsible, very honest people. That's Rhonda Shirley. She's a retired Tennessee state trooper and Glenn's daughter. I guess that's something you, you don't really figure out. That was just something in him. Shirley was not a criminal mastermind. He'd get loaded and impulsive and once robbed a Burbank ice cream company of 28 bucks using a toy gun. In his brief moments of civilian life, he'd been a shade tree guitarist at best, strumming chords along with the radio. But with all that time to kill behind bars, Shirley began writing songs. You can't cage the mind of a dreamer. You've got to do something in, in prison. Or go insane. You know, like you can do it gambling, you can do it hustling, you can do it shooting narcotics or, or taking pills. But you got to have something going to let you face that next day. 
No one would have heard any of those sanity-preserving tunes without the divine intervention of Reverend Floyd Gresset. He was a visiting prison chaplain. On the outside, he had a church in Ventura, and Johnny Cash was a member. During Cash's rehearsal the night before the show, Gresset dropped by and delivered a tape of a song straight from prison. There's a gray stone chapel here at Folsom. After his triumphant performance at Folsom, the man in black was on a mission to set Shirley free. He stepped in with connections that included Governor Ronald Reagan and Reverend Billy Graham. He got Shirley transferred to the minimum security prison at Vacaville. Cash also got him a record deal. It was that messianic complex thing kicking into high gear. I'm going to save this guy and the process save myself. That's Nashville pedal steel master Lloyd Green. He was one of the session players imported from Tennessee to back up Shirley on his self-named album, recorded live in Vacaville while he was still doing time. During the show, I was thinking about all the faces out there that I can see that I've been seeing for years in here now. Well, I got ten and a half years of this lockdown business, and I'm not proud of any of it, because every damn day hurt. Now, a lot of you got a lot more than that, but some of you got a lot less, because you're just starting. Well, for God's sake, for God's sake, man, don't let it take you no ten and a half years in here to get yourself together. In March of 1971, Glenn Shirley was paroled, free again. His album was released a few weeks later. Cash moved him down to Nashville, gave him a spot on his road show, and signed him to a publishing deal. But Shirley couldn't play the Nashville game. He tried for about a year and a half, but he couldn't adjust to life beyond a cell. His addictions kicked in, his behavior became unpredictable and dangerous, and when he threatened a band member, that was the last straw. Though it crushed him, finally Johnny Cash had to cut his friend loose. Again, Marty Stewart. This is a big statement, but to be turned out of the California penal system and to be put into the world of hillbilly show business, good old boy show business, there ain't a hell of a lot of difference in a lot of ways. It's one, you just swap in jailhouses. Now I feel no fear as I sit here, though death is close at hand. And it's with bitter gall. Shirley drifted and drugged and lost touch with his family. His only goal left to stay out of prison. By 1978, just six years after his album was released, he was living in the cab of a truck on a cattle farm near Salinas. In May of that year, he took his own life at the age of 42. I've heard a lot of people say, well, do you think John should have taken more responsibility? Rhonda Shirley. He did his job. He gave him a job. He gave him a home. He was his friend. He gave him advice. But Dad was a grown man and chose to take it or not. So it was never John's job to guide my father through life. In the last five decades, the Johnny Cash Live at Folsom Prison album has sold more than three million copies. And Johnny Cash is still probably the most recognized name in country music. And Glenn Shirley? Now you know who he is, too. For the California Report, I'm Peter Gilstrap in Nashville. And to adhere that Christ is near on this my last day And he would cleanse away my sins if I just kneel and pray but death is pure and just as sure by hatchet, rope, or gun. And I don't care to end with Our next profile starts with a ghost hunt in San Francisco. All ghost hunters, 
That's actor Christian Cadigal, and he's leading people around steep streets lined with stately Victorians. He's wearing full 19th century dress. He's got a top hat and a clacking cane. KQED's Carly Severn went along on the tour and brings us the tale of a crusading heroine who somehow became a demon in her own lifetime. This unlit street corner is dark, so dark that our tour guide, Christian, places his flickering lantern down on the sidewalk to illuminate a large plaque under our feet, dedicated to a woman who lived and died here over a century ago. And she was said to be worth $30 million. For anybody, anytime, that is an accomplishment. For a woman in the Victorian time, quite an accomplishment. For an African-American woman, for that time, almost unheard of, almost. This, my friends, is Miss Mary Ellen Pleasant. The excitable crowd on this tour has come to be scared. But sometimes, Christian says, they get more than they bargained for. What is that? Mary's ghost is said to summon chills, frighten dogs, even throw nuts from the nearby eucalyptus trees at people like us. Not on your head, from behind on your back. After the crowds disperse into the night, I wondered, why would this soul still be so restless? I wanted to learn more about the flesh and blood Mary, and there's one person who knows her better than most, Sacramento writer Sushil Bibbs. Her life is so enshrouded in mystery because she was her own spin doctor. Mary wrote three autobiographies, but each one contradicts the other. Here's what we do know about her. She was born a slave in Georgia. She was raised in Nantucket in indenture. There on the East Coast, years before she came to San Francisco, Mary was a crucial figure in the civil rights fight, secretly teaming up with abolitionists and rescuing escaped slaves on the Underground Railroad. In this world, nothing could ever be as it seemed. She was very used to being covert, and she often said that words were made to conceal feelings and that she was good at it. And that double life included presenting as a white woman when she could. Early on, she married well and rich, And when she was widowed, she inherited all that money. $45,000 in gold from her husband's estate. And she made the journey by steamer to San Francisco in 1852, still passing as white. She found a town filled with men come to make their gold rush fortunes. They were far from home and needed somewhere to live. So Mary buys up boarding houses and laundries. All kinds of things that she thinks will be a niche in San Francisco to make more money. Thing is, she stayed close to the action in these boarding houses and often even cooked for these men. Why? Because you can hear secrets that way. And she used them as leverage to further her real cause, bringing the Underground Railroad out west. You see, only San Francisco's growing black community knew her as a black woman, They called her the Black City Hall, the place where you go to get what you need. She helped African-Americans get jobs on steamers and in homes and and in her own businesses. Not only that, almost a century before Rosa Parks, Mary Ellen Pleasant challenged the city's segregated transit system. She won in and out of court, and in 1868, 
um, African Americans could ride the trolleys in San Francisco. After the Civil War, over a decade after she arrived in the city, Mary finally checked the box that said black on the census of 1865. Sushil, who also performs as Mary on stage, reads from her memoirs. My cause was the cause of freedom and equality for myself and for my people. And I'd rather be a corpse than a coward. But by the 1880s, the wild, mud-caked San Francisco that Mary Ellen Pleasant, the capitalist, had carved her way into, had itself transformed. Very much more overtly racist. Across the nation, emancipated slaves became a convenient scapegoat for the economy's woes. And as a wealthy, older black woman, Mary now inspired suspicion, even fear, And that is how a heroine becomes a villain. Now the press coined a racist nickname, Mammy Pleasant. And in 1883, she became entangled in the scandalous trial of a Nevada senator, accused of seducing, then abandoning a young woman. That woman was Mary's friend. It was a trial like the O.J. Simpson trial of the 20th century and went all the way to New York and it was reported everywhere, every day. Though she wasn't on trial, Mary was painted as a sinister crone with an otherworldly hold over the white people she was close to. But rather than rejecting the rumors, she defied them, encouraged them even during the senator's trial. At one point, she planted a voodoo doll and said that, you know, he would die. Uh, He did die during the the course of the trials. And also, to Mary Ellen Pleasant, voodoo wasn't just some scare tactic. It was voodoo, a belief system from her ancestral homeland of Haiti. It was Pleasant's religion from the time she was a child. She was born the daughter of a voodoo priestess and the granddaughter of a voodoo priestess from Haiti. Scandal followed scandal. When her wealthy white business partner was found dead in her mansion, his widow collaborated on a full-page smear piece in the San Francisco Chronicle. The headline? The Queen of the Voodoos. The press had used the language of the supernatural to describe her for years. Now they made her into a flat-out monster and the public turned on her. They exploited those rumors and called her a blackmailer. They called her a baby stealer. So I would say that it was hate, revenge, and racism. Mary Ellen Pleasant died in 1904 in her 90s. After such a life, so many achievements, this was the obituary she received in the San Francisco Examiner. Mammy Pleasant will work weird spells no more. It's telling who gets a legend and who gets a ghost story. How we're remembered depends on who's telling your story. Or as our tour guide Christian put it, under those haunted eucalyptus trees in San Francisco. But when there's three versions of your life story, we don't know what to do with your life story. We stop telling your life story and we forget your story. He keeps Mary Allen Pleasant on his ghost hunt, he says so that she's not forgotten. For The California Report, I'm Carly Seven.
One of my favorite profiles on our show this year aired this fall when kids in Oakland were heading back to a district that was still short some 30 teachers. That's why the story of Dr. Lou Paulette Taylor at McClyman's High School caught the attention of our education reporter, Vanessa Rancaño. On the first day of school, Miss Cynthia from the front office is running the registration tables. Hallways are full of students and teachers chatting, and after days of buffing, the checkered linoleum floors are gleaming. Upstairs in room 308, Lou Paulette Taylor is getting ready for class. You know, you have a, a new chance to make new mistakes and to do things better than you did the year before, you know, so it's new. It's exciting. Not exactly what you'd expect to hear from someone starting her 49th year on the job. Nearly all those years right here at McClyman's. Taylor goes by Dr. Taylor, or most of the time, just DT. Everybody knows who DT is. 16-year-old Kayon Green is a little nervous about his first English class with her. DT's got a reputation. As soon as you step in, that's the first thing you'll hear about. DT, DT. That's, that's what I was hearing about. I didn't know who she was. Her students start filing in. Missy over there, pull that shirt down. You know better. Schedule's in the wire basket, no phones out. Why is the hat on in the building? Okay, everybody ready? Okay. Dr. Taylor starts off by telling the class about herself. I graduated from McClyman's, ooh, 50-some years ago, 1966. I grew up in West Oakland on 9th Street between Cypress and Center, and I went to Prescott. How many people went to Prescott? There's no whispering, no phones buzzing. She tells the kids she turned down other job offers to stay here. It just didn't feel right. You know, I just felt I should be here because this was home and this is my neighborhood, if you understand that, okay? Some of you, I talked to grandparents. Woo, <laughs> grandparents, I can't even believe it's been that long. Now it's the students' turn to introduce themselves. Okay, we're going to start over here. Should we start over here? Over there. Over there. Over there. Right there. Right there. Over there. You want to start? You have to come up here because this is getting practice for senior project and other presentations you're going to do in this class. We're always oh. there. No, just start over here. Okay, come on. Kayon steps to the front of the class. All right, uh, I feel good today because, you know, I woke up feeling good, look good. I'm excited to be a senior because, uh, I like to be looked up to, you know, by the ninth and tenth graders. Uh, I'm anxious. I'm anxious about a DT class and how much, um, how much work I'm gonna receive. Yeah, I'm scared. Kayon is one of those students with deep ties to Dr. Taylor. She's taught generations of his family. Since she know my mom and my dad, you know, I I can't really goof around. A lot of teachers get ran out of here because of the students at Mac, like. The teachers, I don't know, they don't get the same respect as she does. She don't ask for it. It's just given to her because of the history. There are a few people on campus who share some of that history, but nobody's been here as long as Dr. Taylor. The turnover at our school is, it's like sometimes we meet new teachers on the first day and by Christmas they're gone, sometime Thanksgiving. Um, they're gone. Rolanda McGee is a social worker here. At McClyman's, only about 15% of teachers stick around for a third year, the worst retention rate in the district, with one exception, a continuation school. McGee cites high turnover among administrators and inexperienced teachers. So there's a lot of trauma that our kids face, and some adults cannot handle that trauma. And they do a year and then they're gone. 
because it's too overwhelming. Dr. Taylor just soldiers through overwhelming. I ask what she thinks her job consists of. Counselor, grandmother, auntie, cousin, social worker, preacher. You don't ever get to just teach and you don't get to leave the kids here. You take them home with you mentally and you try to figure out what else can I do? Yes, she says, some days she can get weary, but she's always learning. It's the part about school, about teaching, that she still loves. It was something that I always wanted to be when I was little, I think because I always enjoyed school. I enjoyed reading, I enjoyed math, I enjoyed experimenting when we did science. I liked everything about school. I liked recess, I liked PE. Dr. Taylor's almost 70, but she's not leaving anytime soon. It's not right here yet, she says. Too much coming and going. At the end of the school day, a former student comes by to visit. She just graduated, and she's heading to USC. Oh, come here, come here. Okay, well, look, be good. Call me if you need anything. I always tell them, I want you to be successful in your next life, and part of my job is getting you your little skill and tool bank together so that you know how to be your own advocate and find what you need and know where you can come back to and get help. School's over for the day. Dr. Taylor could be heading home, but another student is walking in the door. For The California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño in Oakland. One of the highlights of this year for us was when high school students took over our airwaves for a week. They co-hosted our show, and they brought us stories from their lives. We especially loved this one from two cousins who were then seniors at Menlo Atherton High. They've shared a love of music ever since they were little, growing up next door to each other in Tonga. Yeah, I mean, we, we sang we sang all the time. I don't even think there's a time where we didn't sing. My name is Moala Tautua'a. My dad's, my dad's older brother. He's married to one of my mom's sisters. Hi, my name is Joe Fifita and I am a... 18 years old. That's the best one. I'm older than him by a couple months, but I still think we like we're like brothers. He's like an old brother to me. No matter if there's trouble or something, he always step up for me sometimes. And I always step up for him. As a Tongan boy, at at the younger age you're required to like join the church choir. The kids, we sit in the front, and then on the row next to us are all the men. And when we listen to them harmonize, it's just, it's just like that. It's like a click. It's like, and like, just like, listening to them is like a dictionary for us. It's like, we, we define every single note when we're young and just like build on it as we get older. We just do random stuff which makes us happy. But it's mostly singing though. So we be like, like say, hey, where you at? I'm out the house. Well, you want to swing by? Yeah, I'm walking. Yeah, let's go. It's like 
She started coming to my house, she started singing for a little bit. Feel like feel bored or something. Somebody, Mala just like start beatboxing or just start playing instrumental. We just start jamming. We mostly talk about you know life, just like reading a story, talking about grew up in a poor family and stuff like that, and how the. How the hell we got here in America and start finding life and education? I think music uh, definitely um, helps us not um, do that like bad stuff. Keeps us off the streets. You can learn from music too. Yeah, music to me is like a it's like a spirit that just comes through my mind. It's like a drug to me. <laughs> And I'm addicted to it. <laughs> For the California Report, this is Joe Fifira. California, And that's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Coca. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our technical producer is Seal Muller with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin and Rob Spade. Our editorial team includes Bianca Taylor, Susie Racho, Victoria Mauleon, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Happy New Year. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.